Welcome to Teaching from Trinity, a weekly podcast from Trinity Lutheran Church in Rupert, Idaho. For the months of January through May, Rev. Dr. James Von Bush is leading this class exploring the book of Revelation. If you would like the handout to accompany this week's lesson, please visit our website, tlcrupert.com. You can find them on the virtual attendance page under the home tab. Thank you for listening. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful to be counted among your saints. We thank you so very much for the gifts of life and grace and forgiveness that you pour out in abundance upon your people. And so, like I said, Father, the greatest thing that you have told us is to know for certain that our names are written in the book of life. And and you give us so very much to look forward to. Help us to capture the vision that you have for us, your church, and help us to see Jesus Christ as he truly is. In Jesus' name, amen. Week 11, the book of Revelation. Reading again, Revelation verse 1 of chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. So let's talk about eschatology for a minute. It is not new. It's not something new. It's not something that is only relevant to the book of Revelation. It is actually spoken of, not this term necessarily, but the mindset, the thought process is all through the Old Testament. And so the, this eschatology, this kind of study of end times, is really, first bullet point if you're taking notes, the divine conclusion and ultimate destiny of human souls. The divine conclusion. Well, that happened already in some sense. The divine conclusion has already happened on the cross. Jesus Christ defeated sin, death, and the devil on the cross. And so there is a a conclusion element. That's why we refer to the idea of now and not yet, and we can fall off the log either way. We can either fall off the log and say everything's in the past, done and over, nothing to be done now. Or we can fall off the log and say everything's in the future, and so nothing to be done now. You see, does that make sense? Especially as God's people and believers, we can, we can kind of get that kind of um, sidetracked either way. We can either say there's nothing for us to do. We're just waiting. We're just in the waiting game, you know, waiting mode for Christ to come back. And that's definitely characteristic of dispensational premillennialism. It's just, we're waiting for Christ to return. We're waiting for the rapture. We're, and so we're just waiting. What's there to be done now? And yet, so that's kind of this future, futuristic mentality only. Or we see, you know, more of the Reformed approach is, well, God's already done everything. He's already chosen who's going to be saved, and therefore we don't need to do anything now either. And both of those fail at understanding what the scriptures are really teaching, especially when we see right there in Revelation chapter 1, how does God describe himself? The God who was, the God who is, the God who is to come. And so it's what has Christ done? There's already some divine conclusion. What is Christ doing right now? And what is he going to do in the future? All three embraced at the same time. The Old Testament then, like I said, eschatology this study of what's going to happen, study of what is yet to come. I don't even necessarily, I mean, we talk about as the study of end times, but then all of a sudden that classifies in our minds, it, it automatically brings up this idea that it's something way out in the future. But it really is more of a study of what God is doing and will do. And so this idea of eschatology is throughout the Old Testament because the Old Testament believers were always in this mindset. What has God done? What is he doing? What is yet to come? What is still going to take place? So let's take a look at that for a minute. I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 52 and Isaiah 53. If you want to turn there, feel free. Um, Otherwise, just kind of soak it in. 
Listen to these words. We're in the season of Lent and approaching the Holy Week, and so we will hear these verses numerous times. But they certainly fit in with what we're talking about this morning as the Old Testament believers having this perspective of what has God done, what is he doing now, what will he do in the future? So starting in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Obviously, Isaiah is prophesying about Christ and the crucifixion experience. Marred beyond human recognition. Didn't even look like a person anymore. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In fact, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall a righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore... I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is an Old Testament perspective on divine conclusion, what God is doing and will do. And so even in the Old Testament, next bullet point, Old Testament believers awaited a future Redeemer. They were, in this moment, the Old Testament, they referred often, and, and God tells them, remember, remember the promises made. Remember the promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Remember the promises made to Noah. Remember the promises made to King David. Remember the promises, right? So he's always saying, remember. Remember what I've done in the past. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt and slavery and brought you into the promised land. He says, so remember what I've done before. And know that he is working now in the current moment and present of you know, where we are in the timeline. He says that to the Old Testament believers over and over again. And the Old Testament believers were counting on God's faithfulness and the keeping of his promises so that he, they knew he was going to still do something in the future. And the divine conclusion through a future Redeemer. Daniel is an uh, often quoted book of prophecy, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was pre presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom uh, one that shall not be destroyed. That's Daniel, the prophet, talking about Christ and his kingdom, establishing his, his kingdom that will have no end. When did he do that? On the cross. And so he, uh, our next bullet point, Old Testament believers look forward to the kingdom of God. Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. So even here as the psalmist writes this, it's past, present, future, all at once. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord is on high and is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. And so the Old Testament believers were looking forward to the kingdom of God and an eternal kingdom. The Old Testament believers anticipate a new covenant. So the Old Testament believers were looking for a new covenant. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So when we participate in the Lord's Supper. The words of institution proclaim these very words that Jesus said at the Last Supper with his disciples when he instituted Holy Communion. He says, this is my body given for you. This is my blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ has established this new covenant that the Old Testament believers were looking forward to. Sometime in the future, Jesus would establish this new covenant and what do they say at the end there? What does Jeremiah say? For the forgiveness of your sins. We have the forgiveness of sins because Jesus Christ paid that price on the cross, shed his blood, gave his life for our forgiveness. And the Old Testament believers were anticipating this very new covenant that we now live in. The Old Testament believers hoped for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. From Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. Joel is talking about a time prophetically to come when God will pour out his spirit so abundantly Every believer receives the Holy Spirit, right? And so what we have here is the, the Old Testament believers looking forward to this great and mighty day when, the, old, when the, the Holy Spirit would be poured out in such a meaningful way, a prophetic way, a powerful way, that it would be clearly evident in his people. And he says, let me read that again. That was Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And so there's this moment, you know, in, in the Old Testament, circumcision, obviously, males eight days old, they were circumcised as the sign of the covenant. What do we practice today as the sign of the covenant is baptism for every child, every adult, 
And so what we see through Christ's work, this fulfillment of Christ's first advent and his coming and dwelling among us and teaching and working miracles and dying on the cross and rising from the dead is an explosion. I mean, just a super expansion of God's grace and mercy to all. So even, I love the way Joel writes this, even the servants will receive the Holy Spirit. And so it is, as Paul writes in Galatians, was kind of more of this, the, the sign of the covenant was circumcision. Now it's baptism and made abundant. And that's how God continues to work his grace throughout history and even now making grace even more abundant and more accessible and more freely given. So an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then the last one under eschatology, Old Testament believers yearned for new heavens and the new earth. They too were looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. It's Isaiah, again, prophesying to the Old Testament believers they were looking forward to. God had promised them a new heaven and a new earth. And this even you know, builds upon Genesis chapter 3. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promises the Redeemer. He says to the serpent, there is one who will come and he will crush your head. Even though you'll bruise his heel, you will, he will crush your head. And Jesus Christ did that. He fulfilled that on the cross. The following verses of Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 8, talk about the curse that is on all of creation. He's talking to Adam, of course, and, and he says to Adam, you know, all the work that you have to do now is going to be extremely hard, challenging, laborious, full of trials and challenges. And by the sweat of your brow, you will try and come up with something to eat. Where before it was freely given in the garden, you could eat from any plant, any time. Now you have to work just for sustenance. All of creation. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that all of creation groans for that time of renewal. Just can't wait for it. Because every part of God's creation is enduring the curse that mankind brought upon it. And so even the Old Testament believers are yearning for new heavens and a new earth. So that's eschatology. It's not something new. It's not just something since Christ's first advent. It's not just something that's focused on what we might consider the end of time. It's past, present, and future, all right now. So these hopes, then, are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All these divine conclusions of Old Testament believers are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, the destiny of human souls. Right? Christ's work on the cross is what determines the impact and the destiny of human souls. That's what we read in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. What Christ did on the cross ultimately determines the destiny of human souls. So today, today, let me back up for a second. When we talk about these hopes that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, as I just went through that list of what the Old Testament believers were looking forward to, first and foremost, they were looking forward to that future Redeemer, the Messiah. As I mentioned already, he defeated sin, death, and the devil. So, that future Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The uh, kingdom of God, well, that's in his resurrection. Where did Jesus ascend to? He sits at the right hand of God. And so, he also has established his kingdom through his resurrection and ruling, he said as he ascended, all authority has been given to me, in both heaven and on earth. There's nothing left. He has it all. And so resurrection and ascension seated on the throne. And then this new covenant, as I mentioned already, we have forgiveness and peace with God. That is the new covenant. 
In the blood of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. And then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. As I read those words from Joel about God pouring out His Spirit, maybe some of you, your minds already leapt to the day of Pentecost when Peter is preaching on that day. And in fact, who does he quote? Joel. And these exact verses that there would be this outpouring of the Spirit. See, they were being accused of being drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. They were accused of being accused of all kinds of strange things. And Peter says, all of you are wrong. Here's the explanation what's just happened. And he quotes Joel, the prophet, talking about the fulfillment of that prophecy in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then, new heavens and new earth. How is that one being fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Well, look around. You are his new creation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you are a new creation. See, Jesus Christ is in the constant work of recreation. And so you have been made a new creation in Christ. So will there be an ultimate fulfillment in all these? Yes, absolutely. There will come a day when there is no more sin. When Satan is ultimately cast out. When death has completely been swallowed up in victory. There will come a day when not only is Christ seated on his throne, but as we will see in the book of Revelation chapter 4, all of his people are there in the throne room of God. There will come a day when forgiveness is not necessary anymore because there will be no more sin. Why? I mean, that's even hard for me to say out loud. It's like, what will they even be like? Where forgiveness is not necessary anymore because there's no more sin, no more rebellion, no more warring between my will and God's will. There will be a day when we are in the presence of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living there. And as I mentioned, you are his new creation now, even now. So all these hopes that the Old Testament believers were looking forward to are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and will be ultimately and completely fulfilled at his second return. So today, Christians live in the age of fulfillment. That's what we live in right now. We live in the age of fulfillment and mission. Fulfillment and mission. I love the way the author of Hebrews starts his letter. Chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. I think what the author of Hebrews is getting at there is, God spoke to us in one way, and we have the writings of the prophets and the words that God spoke to his people throughout those generations. And then he makes this great transition, and he says, but now we're living in these last days. And he has spoken to us differently. He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so the author of Hebrews, he's talking to the people, you know, confronting some specific issues here. Some of them were wanting to return to the old ways of doing things and saying, this is how we need to keep doing. We need to keep offering sacrifices at the temple. We need to keep living according to the law and those kinds of things. And the author of Hebrews says, you know, we got those words from prophets in the past. But all those prophets were pointing to Jesus. And the law was pointing us to Jesus. And Jesus has come. And so now in these last days, these days that we live in now, we listen to the words of Jesus. And he has purified us 
through his death and resurrection, the gift of his life and his blood. And we have been purified, so now we can live. We don't have to be offering sacrifices anymore in the temple. One sacrifice was made for all at one time. It's a whole new way of living. And he's now sitting on the throne. He's superior to all. And one of the things that was often confusing for folks was, well, you know, this is where we see us kind of trapped in time and space and as humans, and the angels must be more superior to us because they're spirits and they have wings and they can show up whenever they want. And, and that, so where does Jesus, well, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is above everything. He goes on later and corrects us as well that actually... When we are, we are more superior, if we can say it that way, that's the way the author of Hebrews uses this word, we're more superior to, than the angels as well. And we don't become angels when we die. That would be a demotion. We are superior to the angels in God's created order. And the author of Hebrews says, and Jesus Christ is superior to all. So we're living in these last days, the age of fulfillment and mission proclaiming this good news. So Christians experience the tension of the now and the not yet. That's the tension we live in right now. Just like we live in the tension of sinner and saint, both are true right now. We live in the tension of, we live now as kingdom people, even though there's still a not yet. I mean, there's still something to look forward to. Now and not yet. So Christians, third bullet point, Christians live now. That's the idea. We live now as Christians, as God's people. We do this between the two advents of Jesus Christ. Many of the parables that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God include this now and not yet perspective this tension that we live in. Think for just one moment about the ten virgins and the lamps and the oil. Remember that parable that Jesus taught? And there were the ten virgins, ten meaning all of them, right? Ten, important number. Jesus is saying all of them. And they were there, and five of them, half of them, had their oil and the reserves to keep them burning, and half of them did not. So when those five, their lamps went out, what did they have to do? They first asked, can we borrow some from the rest of you that were prepared? No. Okay, we'll have to go get some. And they come back, and the bridegroom has come while they were gone. What Jesus is saying is, live now and be ready for what's to come. Live now and be ready and waiting for what's to come. There's a waiting and a watching. There's a being prepared And living now, those lamps were burning then. That's why they ran out of oil. They were burning. And they were waiting at the same time. As Christians, we live now between the two advents of Christ. We live now as God's kingdom people. Redeemed, purchased, set free. We live now. And we look forward to what is to come. So on the one hand, Christians receive the promised blessings through the gospel and the sacraments. We received received those promised blessings now through the gospel, through the sacraments. God has promised to work through his gospel. He has promised to be present in the waters of holy baptism, adopting us into his family, forgiving us and cleansing us of our sins and giving us his Holy Spirit. He has promised to work through the means of the Holy Supper, the bread and the wine, where he is truly present in the bread and wine of holy communion. Therefore, so are his gifts of forgiveness and salvation, eternal life. He has promised to work through his people, and the consolation and the comfort of the brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. He has promised to do these things. And so he is faithful to keep his promise, and we receive those promises now. And they cause us to look forward to what he is doing in the future. So that's on one hand. On the other hand, Christians wait 
to enter the glories of heaven. We look forward to the glories of heaven. There is no fear of death for the believer because we know God has made promises and assurances to us. So we look forward to that day when we will be in the presence of God and the saints that have gone before us and who will come after us in the glories of heaven. Therefore, we can make some summary statements about the life of a Christian. The life of a Christian is by faith, not by sight. From Genesis chapter 1 through Revelation chapter 22, we are reminded repeatedly that this life we live is a life lived by faith. Faith in the Son of God who gave himself for us. The Old Testament believers were looking forward to that day. And while we have the opportunity to look back to that day when Jesus Christ died on the cross, we also have the opportunity to look forward to the day when he returns or when he takes us home. We live by faith, not by sight. Second thing, the life of a Christian is characterized by persecution. The life of a Christian is characterized by persecution. Trials, suffering, challenges, whatever word makes the most uh, sense to you. This is also true from beginning to end. In the Old Testament as well as the New Testament and today, God's people faced persecution. And we will continue to, if living a Christian life is therefore characterized by persecution, avoiding persecution can only be done by hiding Christ. That's what Jesus, I think, is, you know, when he, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you don't light a lamp and then cover it. Right? And so we, the only way to avoid persecution is to blend in, to be, or at least look, unchristian. <laughs> because if we are living as kingdom people, as God's kingdom people, we will experience persecution. The third is the life of a Christian is that we are recipient. We are a recipient of abundant life now and in the future. Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Now that immediately that becomes kind of a sticky moment because is this life abundant based on what I would define as life abundant or what Christ would, would define as life abundant? We've talked about this before when we talk about the, the use of the word good. When we use the word good, we have all kinds of different associations and connotations most of the time. It's very similar to the way God uses it, just from a different perspective. When we say we think something is good, it means it meets our expectations. It's what we like. It's worked out according to our plans. That was good, right? Well, that's, kinda, that's exactly how God uses the word good in creation. He finishes each day by saying it was good. It was exactly as he intended it to be. When in Romans chapter 8, and we're going to come back and look at this in just a minute, in Romans chapter 8, when he says all things work together for good, for those who are called and love him, what he's saying is, in your life, he is working all things, whatever they are, good, bad, and ugly, he's working them all for good according to his definition. What, and, and so we need to understand, how does God define the word good? And what, what does it look like from his perspective? Same thing when we talk about the abundant life. I might step back and say, you know, the abundant life from my perspective would be, and list off five, six things, right? But the real question is, what is Jesus saying when he says abundant life? I give you abundant life. I think it's going to be directly tied to being forgiven. That's the abundant life, is knowing without a shadow of a doubt that you are guilt-free. That's the abundant life, isn't it? Without guilt, without shame, at peace with God. There is nothing greater 
than that abundance. And then the fourth one is the, the life of a Christian is life under the cross. Life under the cross. Speaking of suffering then, there are numerous reasons why we face suffering in this world. One, I'm just, I've said these before, but I'm just going to run through them really quickly. One of the reasons we experience suffering, one of the reasons every person experiences suffering, is because we live in a broken world. A cursed and broken world, broken by sin. The second reason we experience suffering is because we are broken. So I'm going to personalize this for a minute. I experience suffering in this world because I'm broken. And I sin, and I make stupid decisions, and I go against God's will, and I act foolishly, and so I suffer for that. The third reason I suffer is because you're broken. And you do stuff that causes suffering in my life, right? So I just, we can all say that. Each one of us can say personally, I suffer because I do sin, right? And I suffer because the people around me sin. So the world is broken, I'm broken, you're broken. Then we also experience suffering because Satan is after us. Satan would love to destroy your faith. And so how can he do that? How do you do it with Job? He's just brought suffering into his life. That's what his intent was. And so every believer can expect suffering in their life because... Satan wants to destroy your faith. We see it through the Psalms. We hear it all the time. Why am I suffering, but the unbeliever seems to be prospering? We see that in the Psalms repeatedly. Why am I, as one of God's people, suffering so much, but those who don't, who don't even believe there's a God or have rebelled against God seem to be just, life is good for them? Well, because Satan is after you. He'd like to destroy your faith. The fifth reason we suffer is because God disciplines those who he loves. And discipline is not pleasant. Again, in the, authors, the author of Hebrews says that if you are not disciplined by God, consider yourself illegitimate and not his child. So because you're his child, he disciplines. And it's an act of love. Just like any parent who disciplines their child does it because they care about them and they love them even though it may be unpleasant in the moment. But here's the sixth reason we suffer. For the, for the cross, for the gospel. Jesus Christ suffered. This is the theology of the cross. Suffered on the cross, and that's this great outpouring of grace. We receive forgiveness and blessing through Christ's suffering. There is no gospel without the cross. So the sixth reason you'll suffer is for the proclamation of the gospel. Sometimes God will rescue you out of your suffering. Sometimes God will heal you from what we face in this broken world and our brokenness. And sometimes we will remain in our suffering and challenges because God's going to do whatever is best for the proclamation of the gospel. So sometimes you'll suffer for the proclamation of God's love and grace so that someone else, if that gospel is best proclaimed through your healing, he will heal you. If, that God, if God's gospel is best proclaimed through our suffering, we will suffer. Can we agree with God? Is, we live by faith, not by sight. Can we agree with God and say, God, I want what's going to proclaim the gospel. I want that done in my life. I heard somebody say that's tough. You're exactly right. Only through the power of the Holy Spirit, only through the gift of God's love and grace, only through the assurances of knowing that my sins are forgiven, can I say, God, your will be done, not mine. Just like Jesus said in the garden, not your will. I mean, not my will, but yours. I think I got that backwards. Yeah. Let me rephrase that. Can we pray in agreement like Jesus did in the garden? Not my will, but your be, will be done, God, for the sake of the gospel. Any, Fred, is that a question? Okay. I don't know how the phrase is, but I'm 
Okay, that's always fun. <laughs> Absolutely, Fred. Yeah, in fact, um, I've heard it quoted this way, and I'm, I don't remember if it was Martin Luther or not. I think it was, but here, I'm just going to say it out here, and we'll, you know, we, somebody can fact check me later. If you're living life as a Christian, you will be drawn to, dependent on, just a desire, almost a desperation for the word and sacrament. If I'm not, if I can say, eh, you know, being present for the gifts of God and the grace that he has provided through his word and through the sacraments, if I can take it or leave it, it might be a test or a litmus saying, well, you're probably not really living like a kingdom person then either. You're really not living like a full Christian in that sense. But if I am and I'm facing that persecution and suffering, then I'm not, I can't wait for Sunday to get here where I know that God's grace will be presented in the means he has promised. Is that what you were saying, Fred? Yeah. yeah. So. And, and, and I don't know where I'm going. Um, <laughs> we'll try and keep up with you. <laughs> Fred, if I, you brought up the Old Testament believers, and immediately what comes to my mind is the time in the wilderness, but you can look at any of the kingdoms. I mean, you have the divided kingdoms, you have all the kings who did evil in the sight of God. They brought in other worship of idols and idolatry and that kind of thing. What we see over and over again throughout all those ages is this uh, a focus on self and present, right? I mean, that's... When we turn our focus on ourselves and what's happening in my life and my world right now, then yes, I turn away from God and I forget about his promises. But when I am living now based on what God has already done and what he's going to do, and now I live right here in the moment based on those two things, then, then I'm not lost. Does that fit with me? Okay. Thank you, Fred, for those comments. Backside, then, of that handout, signs of the end, Christ's return. I'm going to invite you to jot down. These are the places in the Gospels where Jesus specifically talks about some of these signs of the end. Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. So that's Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 24. Starting in verse 1 of 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, literally, that happened in 70 A.D. when the Romans came in and conquered and they destroyed the temple and there was not one stone left on top of another. Verse 3, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when all these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. Interesting, the first thing he says because he knows the temptation is that we will be led astray. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So first sign, these will happen all the time. It's not only in the future. So that might be how you write that first, is that it's not only in the future. When he talks about wars and rumors of wars and nations rising against nation, people against people, famines and earthquakes, this is every generation Jesus is talking about. And he says, it's just the beginning. It's not the end, it's the beginning. And it will be present in every generation. So what does he go on and say? So don't be led astray. You must be watchful because the, the greatest temptation here is to become apathetic. To just, it just seems, keeps happening, same as it has before, same as last generation. First Peter addresses this, and Peter does in his letter. He says, there will be mockers who come along and say, we've been doing this for generations. It's the same rumors and war and kingdom against kingdom, and there's been earthquakes and there's been hurricanes and there's been... All these things have happened every generation. What makes you think it's gonna, there's going to be... And really what they're saying is exactly what Jesus said. It's going to happen in every generation. The world is still broken. And what, it really, what he's saying is, don't be led astray. Be watchful. Don't give in to apathy. Verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Every generation. It's not just one generation in the future that's going to experience tribulation. There's been martyrs since the first century for the kingdom of God. So this is ongoing. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Also, every generation. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. I mean, if you listen to what Jesus is saying, if I'm the disciple, it's like, this is horrible. I mean, this is depressing, is it not? That there will be imposters and there will be mockers and there will be people who will be led astray from the gospel. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So, the second is that what Jesus is giving here is not, not a means for calculating. So the first sign that Jesus kind of talks about is that it's not just in the future, it's every generation. The second one is that it's not a means for calculating. And we've seen that happen. I mean, how many times have somebody said, you know, we think it's going to happen on this day and this month and this year because we've calculated it out. I don't know what Jesus goes on to say. I don't know when. Only the Father knows when. But somehow we think we're smart enough. We'll calculate exactly when Jesus is going to come back. But what does he say here? It's more about evangelizing. So the gospel will be proclaimed all over the globe to all nations and people and tribes and tongues because that's who's in, mentioned in the book of Revelation that's you know, present before the kingdom of God and, and his throne is... There's a multitude, too many to count, and they're from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So the gospel is going to be proclaimed. It's not about calculating, it's about evangelizing. Let's read on. Verse 15, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand... Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back for his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, kind of a, a sadness expression. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been seen from the beginning of the world until now, now no, ne- nor will never be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. 
See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. A lot's to unpack there. I don't have time right now to look into every aspect of it. But the third point that Jesus is talking about here is a reminder of the important and the urgent. You heard what he said. If you're on the housetop, don't go even go inside, right? If you're out in the field, don't go back into town. It's urgent and important. What's so urgent? What's so important? He answers that in Matthew chapter 25, which I'm only going to hint at. That's where he has the parable of the ten virgins. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom, but five of them were foolish and didn't bring enough. And then he talks about the talents. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and trusted to them his very property. And to the one he gave five talents, to another two and another one, according to their abilities. He went away. When he came back, the one who had been given five gave back ten. The one who had been given two gave back four. And the one who had been given one buried it in the dirt. And Jesus says, you have been given something that was urgent, something that was important, and you did nothing with it. That's the, that's the story of the talents. He's just finished talking about this great urgency of when he will come again. And so spend your time doing what the master wants you to do, waiting for him to come back. And so it's urgent, and you don't know when he's coming back. It's important. It's the gospel. That's what he's talking about in the talents. While we could certainly make application to time and treasure and talents, but, you know, actual abilities, I'm convinced that what Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about the talents are the gospel. The master has gone away, and he has left the gospel entrusted to you. And what will you do with it? Will you spread it so that it comes back with even more? Or will you bury that gospel? So the third is an important reminder, an urgency. The fourth is a sign, is that the idea of using discernment. That's what he says. There's going to be others who come. They will say, there he is. He's out in the wilderness. Oh, no, there he is. He's inside. Use discernment and wisdom. And then the fifth sign for Christ's return, I'm just going to, it's kind of a major heading. It's just the categories for understanding. And that's what we're going to unpack here for a minute. So however you want to write that down, it's, I wasn't sure what to do with it. I was making this, you know, as Fred, you said, I wasn't sure where I was going. And so, <laughs> and so the fifth sign, I'm going to actually say, you know, it's, there's these various categories of signs. Jesus then kind of breaks it down for us. And the first sign, the sign evidencing the grace of God. That's why we say it's this missionary age. The sign of Christ's return is an abundant distribution of his grace. Just an abundance of his grace, the missionary age. That's why Jesus emphasizes it with his ascension into heaven and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. That's what you're supposed to do with the gospel that he has entrusted to us. Go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching them. And he also said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, when he says to Peter, upon your faith, I'm going to build this church. Or not on your faith, but on faith. Upon faith, I'm going to build this church. And even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And so enlarging the kingdom. Some more signs then. The signs indicating the judgment of God. So... There are wars, earthquakes, famines. I just went through them as we read from Matthew chapter 24. They are the fact that creation is cursed. Jesus emphasizes that all creation is cursed, and therefore there are wars, earthquakes, famines. Those are those bullet points, points right under the signs indicating the judgment of God. 
And the fourth one, since I went wars, earthquakes, and famines, is he talks about these powers in the heavens. The heavens falling apart is what he refers to there, Jesus does. Throughout the scriptures, we know that when he's talking about sun, moon, and stars falling out of their place in the heavens, he's talking about earthly powers. And so, signs indicating the judgment of God are not only wars, earthquakes, and famines, but also kingdoms collapsing. In Daniel, when Daniel talks about King Nebuchadnezzar's dream and he sets up this statue, you know, he has a dream about a statue and it's made out of different kinds of precious metals until the bottom is the Roman Empire, the clay and, and uh, rock. And then what destroys the whole thing? A big boulder, the kingdom of God. And it grows into a mountain. And so eventually God's kingdom will overthrow every other kingdom. It's in the growing process right now. But one of the signs of the judgment of God is that kingdoms collapse. Kingdoms are brought to destruction and replaced by other kingdoms. So let me go through that again. You just have the signs indicating the judgment of God. There are wars, earthquakes, famines, and ruling powers brought down. And all of these happen through every generation. They've been done, they're being done, and they will continue to happen. The signs representing opposition to God is the third category that Jesus mentions. The signs representing opposition to God. And the first one is tribulation. The second one, apostasy. Or turning away. And the third one is antichrist. So we have tribulation, apostasy, antichrist. Jesus says, you as my followers, my kingdom people will face tribulation. The entire age, the entire age, from first advent to second advent, the entire age. And actually, we could expand. I mean, even the Old Testament believers experience tribulation. God's people throughout all time on this planet will experience tribulation because there is a opposition and opposition to God and his kingdom. And it will intensify the closer we get to his second return. But it's consistent throughout. There's not just one set aside time. It's consistent and growing, intensifying. Apostasy, the falling away or turning away. Obviously, that's opposition to God. And then the Antichrist, Jesus says it multiple times, there will be many false teachers, many enemies of the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us that we don't battle against flesh and blood. But we battle against the rulers and powers. Let me just read it for you. Finally, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. If we don't think we need the armor of God, what does that tell us? It must mean we don't see that there's a battle. And so we become apathetic. We'll fall away. And Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, and that perishes though it is tested by fire, he's talking about the gold, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So not only are we facing the tribulation from around us, those who are opposing God, but God's going to use tribulation in our life to test our own faith, to keep us connected to him so that we turn to him repeatedly. So, we're going to wrap up there. And we will start into the seven seals of Revelation chapter 4 
next week. Any comments, questions before I pray? Any any fill in the blanks that we we didn't get? <laughs> Too many questions. All right. Well then, let me pray, and uh, and we'll continue our exploration in the future. Father in heaven, you are so kind, you are so patient, and Father, I thank you that you gently uh, call us to yourself. You you embrace us in your divine embrace. And you love us completely. And so, Father, we do ask that your spirit would help us to resolve to trust in you, no matter what we face in this life, that we would be able to agree with Jesus that the gospel and another soul saved is what's most important and what heaven rejoices over. In Jesus' name, amen.